Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome everyone on various platform to this second session of the webinar series on demystifying clinical trials and updates on COVID-19, which is organized by Institute for Clinical Research, National Institute of Health, Ministry of Health, Malaysia. I'm Dr. Gor Bakleong, nephrologist and head of CRC Hospital Serdang. This afternoon, we have two guest panelists sharing the COVID-19 updates on Malaysia's experience in WHO's COVID-19 solidarity trial, as well as palliative care. Today, my co-host is no strangers to this webinar. Welcome back, Dato Dr. Gopipin, who is currently the director of Kase Hospice Foundation, and she's also the former director of Institute of Clinical Research. Dr. Gopipin, please. Thank you very much, Baleong. My dear friends, nice to see all of you again. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Gopipin. Thank you. Next, we will share a brief introduction on how this webinar works before we introduce our relevant panelists for today. The Q&A session, like usual, we welcome you to type your questions in the Slido application, the Slido apps. We will try to address as many questions as possible. We'll only address questions related to today's topic. The webinar is open to both public and healthcare professionals. Regarding CPD points, all frontliners, healthcare professionals, and allied health teams, remember to collect your CPD points by filling up the attendance form at the end of the session. In case you miss it, we will also broadcast again at the end of the webinar after the Q&A session. We have received many requests for slide sharing. So after the webinar, the presenter slide will be made available on the ICR slide share account, websites and email newsletter. If you'd like to rewatch this session, you can go to our clinical updates in COVID-19 YouTube channel or listen to our podcast channel when it is available. I'll pass the platform to Dr. Gok. Thank you, Baleong. Good afternoon, everyone. Today, we are very honored to have Dr. Chow Ting Su and Dr. Richard Lim Boon Leong, who are very senior clinician in the Ministry of Health, to come and uh, share with us their experience in uh, preparing for COVID-19 patients as well as conducting research. I want to thank them for joining us this afternoon, despite their heavy responsibilities. They will be uh, focusing on two important topics. One is on this famous solidarity trial on the challenges and success and the Malaysians experience. And uh, Richard Lim will talk about palliative care and COVID-19. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Chow Ting Su. Dr. Chow is currently at the consultant internal medicine specialist and infectious disease specialist at Hospital Pulau Pinang. She's also the Penang State Infection Prevention and Control Coordinator. She has host many, uh, she also hosts many other important positions in the state as well in the country. And she has published various research findings related to not only COVID-19, as also HIV infection and the use of antibiotics. Dr. Chow is a lead investigator for Malaysia for this WHO-initiated solidarity trial that used, actually test many different type of investigator products or drug. 
which is then in its beginning, including hydroxychloroquine and severe and now many other new drugs on COVID-19 infection. This trial is very unique. It is led by WHO and uh, first multi-country RCT that was uh, conducted, organized and conducted in very uh, fast and very uh, in a speedy way. And we are very fortunate that Malaysian has nine hospitals involved in this important study and contributed uh, findings to provide WHO with evidence to help many, many countries manage COVID-19 patients. And we also have broken record that we, uh, after getting our ethical approval, within 11 days, Dr. Yasmin at Sungai Hospital enrolled her first patient to this trial. So without further ado, Dr. Chow, I hand this platform to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Go. And uh, like Dr. Go has already mentioned, this is a very special and unique trial that uh, Malaysia is proud to be one of the country that is actually involved in it. And then I'm going to share with you our experience, the challenges and the success and the issues that we, uh, we met during this uh, whole one year of uh, clinical trial experience. So as this is a disclaimer slide and uh, is intended to use within the healthcare professional as an introduction Solidarity trial is an international clinical trial designed uh, to, to uh, actually lead by the WHO World Health Organization and their partners. And the issue is to identify a quick and fast uh, way to identify effective treatment for COVID-19. And you know that this COVID pandemic uh, started since last year, January, as up to till now today, there is no, not even one single agent that can be actually identified to be effectively shown effectively to treat COVID-19 as far as uh, we are concerned right now. And this is one of the largest international randomized trials for COVID-19 treatments. And it enrolled almost 12,000 patients uh, out of 500 hospitals actually signed up, but active actively involved uh, hospitals are actually coming uh, about 300 hospital sites in all over 30 countries. So what it is, is actually a multi-center open label randomized trial and it evaluates four medication uh, for so-called there is actually hope to treat COVID-19 at that time, including the famous hydroxychloroquine and also the famous lopinavir, ritonavir, or the brand name we have used, Calitra, and interferon, and last but not least, remdesivir, right? Versus a standard of care. So we can actually identify the patients, and then they can randomize is either on hydroxychloroquine, Calitra, or lopinavir, ritonavir, versus lopinavir, ritonavir, interferon, and later interferon only, or remdesivir. And they look at three important outcomes in the COVID-19 patients. We're looking at the majority of the, one of the primary outcome is mortality in 28 days, and then need for assisted ventilation and duration of the hospital stay. So why does it work? It actually simplifies all the trial procedures because when we are in the peak of pandemic, we know that all the hospitals are very busy. 
So the clinicians are very busy, the doctors are very busy. So we cannot have a very, very complicated trial procedures. So they simplify all the trial procedures as, as simple as possible. Once an approval is obtained through regulatory and ethical board, all of us just use electronic entry on the patients who have been given informed consent. And then online randomization and of the consented patients, and it's all done by computer-based. So it has actually cut short a lot of our paperwork issues. And this is a very simple design also, very simple inclusion criteria. All confirmed COVID-19 patients age 18 years and above, and they must be hospitalized and able to give consent and not known to have any, uh, receive any of the study drug without anticipate transfer to elsewhere within 72 hours. And in physician's view, there's no contraindication for the any study drug. And it includes all severity. It can be mild to moderate, or even those patients who are on oxygen, inclusive patients who are actually on ventilator also as well. So except those who are critically ill, who the clinicians think the patient will not survive in the next 72 hours. And then the, so the standard of care arms is according to the local guidelines of each of the country. So it's very important that each country will have to set the local guidelines because it is actually the arm is standard of care arm versus investigational product plus standard of care. So if this arm, uh, the patient on the standard of care arm uh, include those steroids or tocilizumab, then this arm, when you are actually putting the patients on investigator product, when the patient needs steroids or tocilizumab, it is allowed. So it is actually a very special kind of design of the trial. So it is unique because it's an adaptive trial. This means that uh, when we see unpromising drugs, then they can drop and then they can actually include others. So hydroxychloroquine and caletra or lopinavir ritonavir arms were discontinued on the 20th of June and 14th of July respectively because it, it is actually the committee realized that interim analysis shows futility towards uh, uh, further development for these two drugs because it didn't show any positive outcomes in prevention to death or prevention to mechanical ventilator days. And interferon later was dropped in October 16, 2020. So in the end, we are actually left with remdesivir versus center of care. Therefore, you can see that in the solidarity report, remdesivir arm actually has about 1,000 over patients recruited in the remdesivir arm. So the success for this trial is it streamlined all the trial initiation, okay, due to public health emergency, because we know that this pandemic is fast and we need to come up with a solution or whether it works or not work, okay? So the, it is, we, we get the fastest ethics clearance by MREC. We are actually given a clearance within five days, thanks to Dato Go and the team's effort, huh? the ICR team's effort. And we get the full approve uh, from the board within five days. And the fast track CTIL clearance by the NPRA pharmacy clearance, given within seven days, evaluated by eight reviewers from the NPRA working day and night. And we also got the study grant of 81,000 and it was allocated with a snap of finger also as well. And it has efficient distribution of the site of the all the investigator product and it achieved in four days facilitated by the Ampang CRC. Thanks for the teamwork. And then uh, I would like to share with you the timeline. As you can see that none of our trial, clinical trial will get this fast approval. MRC approval, we start to apply on the April 
uh, and then four days later, we have achieved the NREC approval. NPRA approval achieved within 10, seven days. And then distribution within the four days, we have already distributed all the investigative product to the sites of the uh, uh, clinical sites. So we get very, very good support from nine major hospitals. Our MOH representative under Dato Dr. Suresh Kumar, uh, lead leadership and nine principal investigators. There are total 62 co-investigators facilitated by researchers from the ICR. And we have total recruitment of 217 patients and 63 of them are on remdesivir, 30 of them are hydroxychloroquine, 47 on lopinavir, ritonavir arm, five on interferon, and 72 of uh, these patients are on center of care. And this is our member. I would like to acknowledge them. Without them, this trial will not run as successful as it is for Malaysia. All right, we have nine state hospitals led by the uh, infectious disease consultant of that hospital. And then the final results were published in New England Journal uh, in February 11, and it has changed the practice of many uh, of our practices in many of the sites and many of the countries also as well. So I would like to say that the innovations are so great in this study because this is the first study to allow virtual consent taking. All right, we have only one copy to the patient when the patient understood, they were signed, and then we teach the patient to take the photo. And then some of them, they like to take the PDF. So some of the patients, we actually ask them to download uh, some apps, huh? camera scan apps or what, in the scanner. So we scan the document and then we upload as PDF. And then we are sent to our handphone and then our handphone will upload to the site, okay, ECRF site. So we oh, actually, we want to minimize exposure of the investigators and without compromising GCP principles at the same time. And then one of the largest trials of COVID-19, we actually collected together, we contribute about 200 over samples and uh, out of 12K samples globally. And it actually has a fast track record in approval, okay? So the, in all nations, we have regular meeting, all right? Uh, all the countries, and we agree because it is actually a global thing, so we have to agree for some time because some of them are in uh, European countries and, and uh, other countries. So we have to sacrifice our night time. Every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Malaysian time, all the investigators will meet on Zoom platform. And then we will discuss issues about uh, uh, investigator products, redistribution, ECRF issues, and sharing difficulties and success stories among each of the countries. And then uh, monitoring is done by pharmacies and the experienced ICR monitor. And we are actually going through a stringent monitoring record also as well. So about web-based CRF, we use EDC cluster with the simple data uh, uh, inclusion criteria of eligibility and then consent uploaded. And then we choose uh, whatever investigative product that is available in our site. So it is very adaptive and it has simple medical history, classification of the severity, and then randomize, and then three outcomes to key in, that's about it. So it's a very simple trial without uh, going through nitty gritty of uh, paperwork as well. But the challenges is the shipment of investigative product to Malaysia was delayed due to uh, you know, a lot of lockdowns and a lot of countries are actually having lockdowns also as well. So, and then to in, in improve on temperature excursion, I remember that there was one whole batch was quarantined and not able to be used because the temperature excursion for that batch uh, medicine is actually uh, uh, exceeded. 
And then trial administration challenges also as well because uh, time zone difference and we need to coordinate large scale trial under NCO is a big challenge. And then one of the also challenges is in busy settings. It's very difficult to recruit patients when the doctors are all running around. And then uploading consent, you have to be a bit tech savvy for the patients to actually take the photo or scan that document onto the PDF platform. And then investigators concern. Okay, so this is one of the major challenges that we have because standard of care means nothing at all versus investigator product. So tend to have a bias in terms of the clinicians are not recruiting the most severe or the critically ill ones as much as possible. So whatever we see, we see we are actually recruiting those worst, is it, uh, uh, patients on Nisoprong, but we hardly recruited in our country, in our Malaysia. None of our patients recruited are actually mechanically ventilated from the beginning. So we have to overcome this. We have discussion in the team and sharing experience and make sure everything is run well. So what is the next step? Now we know that hydroxychloroquine, interferon, caletra, and even remdesivir may not show any difference in the mortality, uh, prevention of the mechanical ventilation days, and also uh, hospitals, uh, hospitalization days. So the next step is called Solidarity Plus. So we are awaiting approval again. And then they have three more new drugs that is intended to be used in Solidarity Plus. And at this time moment, more countries will be involved to find together to find a solution how to treat COVID-19 effectively. So we are still very high hope to get an antiviral or anti-inflammatory for those who are actually facing cytokine release storms, whether we use some monoclonal antibodies or other inter, uh, anti-TNF monoclonal antibodies or any other medications, we are still hoping that Solidarity Plus will give us the answer. So at this moment, this is my last slide. We have no effective treatment available right now in the, in the current state. So again, to control this pandemic is still test, trace and treat, and then not forgetting step number four, time to vaccinate, because I think vaccination is the only way out from this pandemic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Chow, for a wonderful presentation and insightful sharing with all the audience. For those who have questions to Dr. Chow, please type your question in the slide door. The Q&A session will start after our next presenter. Ladies and gentlemen, as of yesterday, we know that there are more than 190 million confirmed cases of COVID globally. And among these, more than 4 million people have died from this pandemic. Malaysia anticipated to hit a million probably in the next week or 10 days, with probably about 8K people will die from this disease. This makes us number 32 in the list of all-time high, as well as number 13 in the numbers of cases per day now. The importance of palliative care during this pandemic has been greatly acknowledged. Despite the needs and the importance of this palliative care, we are having difficulty and challenges provide quality care during this pandemic. Why? For simple reason, ladies and gentlemen, patient can actually deteriorate very fast. Healthcare worker resources are under tremendous stress now and the patient's care involved isolation, which is very paramount to control the disease. And also family members are restricted to keep in touch with the patients. Hence, 
to address this afternoon's lecture on the palliative care among COVID-19 patients, we have the most appropriate presenter. Dr. Richard Lim Boon Leong is currently the consultant and head of palliative care unit in Selayang Hospital. He's also the national head of service for palliative medicine in Ministry of Health. He's actually instrumental in many CPG as well as a chair and instrumental in training people involving in the palliative care, both healthcare professional, doctors and nurses. He is also a senior lecturer and examiner for advanced diploma in palliative care nursing curriculum under Ministry of Health. Without further ado, let's us welcome Dr. Richard to address palliative care in COVID-19 patients. Richard, please. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Goh, for the kind introduction. Just get the slides up, right? Yeah, so very good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I am indeed very thankful to the NIH for allowing me to speak this afternoon. Um, but what I'm not gonna talk about has nothing to do with demystifying you know, clinical trials. But I do hope that what I have to share may be able to support many of my colleagues and all of us who are working in you know, the front line um, when we face the challenges of you know, day-to-day -day work in our COVID wards. Um, so we know that since the beginning of this year and around March, we actually had a, quite a number of cases and rising numbers of cases. And today, we also know that you know, the situation is indeed quite dire. Um, a lot of our ICUs are actually more than 100% um, um, utilized, and we actually are facing quite a lot of um, challenges uh, in this current condition. And I guess the, the truth is that when we become you know, quite overwhelmed, we do have a lot of very difficult decisions that need to be made. And I think that um, right from the beginning of the pandemic, when it was very severe in Europe and North America, the New England Journal of Medicine actually came up with this uh, publication talking about the challenges of ventilator allocation in a pandemic. And following from that, this year in March, uh, 2021, um, the Malaysian Society of Intensive Care uh, came up with a consensus statement and a clinical guidance to decision-making in critically ill COVID-19 patients and talking about ICU admission and life-sustaining treatments. I think that when the situation is such that we are so overwhelmed sometimes and that resource limitation actually you know, creates a situation where we, we don't want to actually have to face certain situations, but unfortunately, uh, because of these limitations, we are having to make difficult decisions. And the practice of triaging is something that, you know, worldwide has been practiced in situations of humanitarian emergencies and crisis. And the WHO actually has guidance to talk about the, the fact that, yes, triaging when resources are limited in a crisis, it is indeed something that may have to be, you know, accepted. But the truth is that Palliative care must also be part of that response when we are facing these humanitarian emergencies and crises. I mean, it is a tragedy indeed when someone actually passes on because of COVID-19, but it is even more tragic if you know, their pain and suffering is not relieved. And so while we are working in those very difficult situations, and sometimes we do despair because we don't want to be in this situation, but we should never despair to the point of forgetting our humanitarian duty to care for those who suffer. 
And palliative care is an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing problems associated with life-threatening illness. And definitely COVID-19, severe COVID-19 is indeed a life-threatening condition. Now, just a few months before the pandemic actually hit the world in 2020, we actually launched our National Palliative Care Policy and Strategic Plan. And I think that it is only appropriate that you know, in the time of this pandemic, we still carry on with that, um, that duty to actually care for people, especially in their most difficult situations. And so the role of palliative care in COVID-19 actually comes from first and foremost, of course, patients who have pre-existing life-limiting conditions, such as incurable cancer, and now they develop COVID-19, they do need to be cared for, and that care needs to be continued even when they're in COVID isolation ward. Um, the second role would be when patients actually develop severe COVID-19, and their prognosis is very poor because of the disease severity. So we do need to actually make sure that at least, um, at the very least, we have them comfortable and keep them calm and less distressed. Now, the third role actually is something that has yet to evolve, and we may be seeing more and more of this at the, as the pandemic subsides, but that would be of COVID-19 survivors who develop long COVID syndromes, where they may have prolonged kind of symptoms of breathlessness, fatigue, and whatnot. And I think that at that time, we also really need to look at how we can improve quality of life for these kind of patients. But for today, I'm going to talk about the very acute situation that we're facing right now in our wards, where patients are actually having very severe symptoms and problems. So when you're going into your COVID wards and you're looking at patients who requires palliative care, I think that all patients with severe COVID-19 with low oxygen saturations on oxygen therapy should be someone that you need to look out for. Um, any patients who have distressing symptoms of dyspnea, restlessness, or severe cough and pain, and of course, those who have pre-existing advanced malignancies or chronic medical illnesses requiring symptom management. And finally, for those whereby we feel that you know, the prognosis may be very poor and uncertain, and there may be a situation where, you know, for some reason, we cannot actually escalate therapy. And so this is where we need to think of palliative care. Now, I want to actually explain something, because I think that there's a great misconception often about term palliative care, and people tend to think that it always means something like terminal care or end-of-life care. But I'd like to actually kind of... Um, clarify this misconception. Today, we talk about an integrated model of palliative care where palliative care actually can happen concurrently and must happen concurrently uh, alongside disease-modifying treatments. And so just because the patient still has active interventions such as antivirals, steroid therapy, and even ventilation support, it is still valid to actually consider palliative care interventions to keep them comfortable throughout their journey, throughout that trajectory, uh, as they face this very difficult illness. And so if we think about their symptoms and what is very distressing, um, two studies actually done in the United Kingdom looking at patients requiring palliative care, they found that breathlessness is the primary symptom, of course, about 70% of patients actually were breathless. And the second most common symptom that you actually deal with is agitation and restlessness, followed by delirium and cough and pain. Now in Salayang Hospital, we've been caring for patients with severe COVID as well, and our team's been trying to collect some data. And this is just some of the, a glimpse of some of the data that we have from June only. Um, and we can see that the symptom prevalence is about the same as in those studies from the UK. So now I'm just going to talk about symptom management in severe COVID-19, starting off with dyspnea because it's the commonest symptom that you'll face. 
Um, and when we look at dyspnea, we need to actually be able to assess the patient to see how comfortable they are or how distressed they are. And to do that, you need to look at the respiratory rate, the use of accessory muscles, SVO2 and the heart rate, whether they're restless or not. And if the patient can actually do a self-report, you can ask them how breathless they are from a scale of zero to 10, zero meaning no dyspnea, and 10 the worst possible they can imagine, just like doing a pain score. But I think for many patients, they may not be able to actually verbalize and it's hard for them to actually understand doing a pain score, uh, a, a score. So you can actually, for those of you who are interested, can do a screenshot of this because this is actually quite a useful tool. It's got eight parameters that you can look, that can help you determine whether someone is very distressed or not with their breathlessness, looking at the heart rate, respiratory rate, restlessness, uh, whether they're using uh, their breathing patterns and how, and, and, and how they're looking. Um, and so eight parameters, you can have a total of 16 points, but how you use this is actually, if you have a score of six or more, this patient is not comfortable enough. This patient is actually kind of distressed and you need to add, start addressing that appropriately and titrate your medications until the patient actually gets more comfortable. And normally that would be a score of less than six. So for those who can still swallow, uh, the management for dyspnea would be to use an opioid. Uh, Aquos morphine will be the primary or mainstay, two to three milligrams, six to eight hourly in PRM. And you can gradually titrate that four hourly in PRM. But many patients, of course, when they're very ill, they might have difficulty swallowing. So you can use subcutaneous morphine at half the dose, one to two milligrams, six to eight hourly, and also gradually titrate it to four hourly. Um, and in, sometimes in the wards, the nursing staff can also be very overwhelmed. So it's not easy to give four hourly medications always on time. And so if you want, you can actually also use a continuous infusion of subcute or IV uh, morphine. And typically we use about 10 to 15 milligrams over 24 hours. Now, for those with renal impairment, uh, you can use fentanyl instead of morphine. And again, you can dilute the fentanyl and make an infusion of four micrograms per hour. And you can titrate that, increasing the infusion by two micrograms per hour every six hours until the patient is actually more comfortable. And normally, you won't need to use more than 12 micrograms per hour. If the patient's got a lot of anxiety, restlessness, and still distressed, you can add a benzodiazepine like midazolam or lorazepam. And typically we use a com combination in our infusion of morphine 10 to 15 milligrams and midazolam 5 to 10 milligrams over 24 hours. Now, just a word about happy hypoxemia. And I think that all of us uh, who manage COVID, you will have seen this where uh, SpO2 and PaO2 is low, but the patient doesn't feel dyspneic. In situations like this, you do not need to start the opioids based on the SpO2 alone only treat if the patient is having dyspnea. But what we know is that patients who have this happy hypoxemia, they actually, at some point when the lung gets worse, they will actually feel dyspneic. And sometimes that transition can be very acute and very severe. So please make sure that you write up uh, subcut morphine 2.5 milligrams, midazolam 2.5 milligrams PRN to stand by just in case the nurses need to give something to the patient when they become very breathless uh, or restless all of a sudden. Okay, moving on to delirium restlessness, which is the second most common problem. Uh, you may see patients with delirium, they've got confused speech, hallucinations, reversal of sleep pattern, and trying to get it in and off bed, um, and restlessness and agitation, you know, moving all around. Um, they pull off their lines and their masks. And so in situations like this, I think that many of you may be familiar with, you know, sometimes the need to have to restrain patients in a bed. Um, and if you look at this, I mean, just think about it and consider, you know, do you think that this is a very dignified way for yourself or your loved ones to be towards the end of one's life? So if we can, we should try and treat the delirium and restlessness, and hopefully then we may be able to take off those restraints, right? Um, so 
you know, for delirium, we would commonly use haloperidol, 0.5 to 1 milligram uh, at night, and PRN. You can give it 30, every 30 minutes to one hour. And you can actually titrate up the dose uh, 1 to 2 milligrams you know, at night, depending on how many PRN doses they take. And most of the time, patients don't need more than 5 milligrams in 24 hours. So it's much less than those with you know, schizophrenia or severe psychosis. If they're very restless, um, I would normally prefer to try and reduce and get the patient calm immediately. So I would use IV midazolam 0.5 to 1 milligram and titrate it every 5 to 10 minutes till the patient's calm. And then after that, put them on uh, subcut midazolam 2.5 PRN. Um, if they're very persistent restlessness and very distressed still, then I would consider using an infusion of 10 to 20 milligrams over 24 hours. Now, other symptoms like pain, if they've got pre-existing pain because they've got cancer or something else, um, I do hope that patients could continue with all of their pain medications even while they're in the COVID wards. And if the patient is on morphine and they develop renal failure, then you can convert to transdermal fentanyl. But um, if for, for further guidance on the dosages and how to treat, please refer back to the CPG on cancer pain management and the pain management handbooks that are available. Um, cough can sometimes be distressing. Initially, you can use some simple cough syrups, but if it's very persistent, aqueous morphine, two to three milligrams uh, TDS or QID is something that can be helpful. And sometimes patients get very distressed at night because they are coughing and they can't sleep. So you can give a night dose. Uh, respiratory secretions can also be distressing and we normally use an, as, um, an anticholinergic to like buscopan or glycopyrrolate, whichever you can actually get. Now, the, now, after talking about, you know, managing breathlessness, cough, pain, um, you can see that morphine and other opioids, as well as sedative medication, are very important, actually, in the management and palliative management of patients with severe COVID. So these are medications that would be useful to have in your ward. But very often, I think that clinicians might actually be concerned, right, because patients with severe COVID, they're hypoxic. Is it safe to use, you know, these medications in severe COVID? So extrapolating from data, which we have in the palliative care setting, uh, when they looked at using these medications in patients with chronic lung disease, like COPD, interstitial lung disease and whatnot, um, they have concluded that low-dose opioids at a dose of 30 milligrams per day, up to 30 milligrams per day, uh, it doesn't increase kind of complications and mortality in COPD patients, even if they have hypercapnia and, um, more, and for interstitial lung disease as well. And the systematic reviews show that there's no significant or clinically relevant respiratory adverse effects of opioids uh, for chronic breathlessness if we are managing patients appropriately using low doses and titrating it according to symptom and need. Now I'm finishing off with talking about communication because I think this is a very important part of palliative management as well. And um, because of the pandemic, I think many of us have become very used to wearing full PPE in our wards. And this can sometimes seem as a barrier right, to your connection with the patient, but it, you can still build rapport with the patient if you speak clearly and look directly at the patient through your face shield, allow patients to speak and listen to them, use gestures of body contact, like you know, holding their hand, a kindly touch where appropriate, even if you're gloved and gowned, and adjust your position so that you can approximate to the patient's eye level. Learn to use empathic statements, like you know, to acknowledge emotions, like, I know you must be feeling very frightened here by yourself. And I can see that, you know, you are very worried about your father's condition. Now, we know that breaking bad news ideally should be done person, uh, in person, face to face. But because of the pandemic, we've also had to learn how to actually use technology, video conferencing. And research actually has shown that um, video consultation is actually effective, accessible and acceptable 
to patients and their families, you know, in terms of communication. And what we also know is that communicating via video uh, co uh, consultation actually can enhance the therapeutic presence of healthcare professionals compared to just a phone call alone. So for those who actually have access to the internet and if you have actually a phone or iPad that you can use to do video calling, that, that would be great. Now, just a bit about breaking bad news. Um, we commonly use what a protocol called the SPIKES protocol, which is a six-step protocol to actually do this. So you can remind yourself when you start out, always prepare yourself, make sure you know the details of the case, introduce yourself and your role in the patient's care, and always ensure that the person you're talking to is in a safe place and you're not calling them while they're driving a car. Um, then check what the patient knows um, and then explain why you're calling them and fire a warning shot if you know, you're gonna give bad news. And then provide the information without using any medical jargon, be very clear and direct. And most importantly, acknowledge their feelings and validate their emotions, showing empathy. Finally, you can clarify whatever questions they may have and also tell them when to expect another update. So I just want to highlight something about empathy. And I think this is a really important thing to think about. You know, when we are facing this kind of situation, many patients with severe COVID who have passed on, they're isolated from their families and the families, even towards their funeral, they have to stay at a distance. So just try and imagine how, it would, how you would feel if you're not being able to kind of be with someone that you truly love, especially in their last moments. And what are some of the things that you might wonder, you know, was he comfortable? Was she frightened and feeling all alone? Was he properly cared for? Did he have enough to eat? These are some of the things that family may often think about and we need to help them find some closure actually when they're thinking about their family members. So when we communicate, it's important that we allow the family to see the patient and know the patient's condition and allow them to speak to the patient. Even if the patient can't speak back, you can put the phone close to the patient's ear and tell them to just speak into the phone. Um, reassure the family that the patient is not alone and being cared for and clarify any concerns that the family may have. At the end, the key message that you want to actually give to them is that the patient is comfortable and calm, not alone and cared for until the very end. And so that's all I have to say. Thank you very much everyone for your attention. And if anyone has any further questions or you need any further guidance and help in palliating patients, um, please feel free to contact me at my email. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Richard, for wonderful presentations and for your sharing. Now the session is open for Q&A. Please type in the Slido. And we have some questions now coming up. First thing is addressed to Dr. Chow. One of the participants would like to know what are the new drugs that has been addressed in the Solidary Plus. Would you like to share with the audience, please, Dr. Chow? Yeah, uh, Solidarity Plus is currently looking at uh, three medication. Number one is uh, anti-malaria drug, which was uh, actually uh, su suggested that there is an entry inhibitor for the virus to enter the cell. It's called artisunate. So we are going to use the intravenous form of artisunate. And then the second drug is uh, actually a monoclonal antibody uh, what is uh, what we call it as infliximab. And then the third one is uh, imatinib. All right. Uh, so these are all anti-inflammatory drugs that we use. Uh, the, not we use. Huh? Okay. It is actually by the uh, development group that found that these are 
fairly promising drugs that we are going to use. And then uh, it will be open label, randomized trial versus standard of care again. Okay. So in other words, it is actually um, at baby step right now that uh, more, none of the country has started uh, because we are in the, in the stage where we are getting the approval. And the Thank second you, question doctor. is ivermectin, right? Is ivermectin one of the drugs? So the answer is no. Uh, it's not in, in the group and the development group uh, is not getting, uh, thinking or getting ivermectin onto the board. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Thank Chow. Yeah. I we know that this, uh, sorry, is yeah. somebody else asking the question? Yeah, can I ask uh, Christian Balio? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Richard, um, I know you advocate that patients, although at end of life, uh, uh, end organ disease, should go for vaccination. What is the reason for doing that? Right. Thank you very much uh, for the question. Yeah, I think that it is still very important and very valid for someone, even if you have uh, some kind of um, life-limiting condition like an organ failure uh, or even cancer, um, to still be vaccinated. Why? Because I think that the vaccine vaccination can actually help to prevent uh, or protect you from a very severe kind of illness. And sometimes in that situation, um, hopefully you may not actually need to be in an, an, a hospital isolation ward. Um, many patients actually sometimes when, when they, you know, they, they get sick and then they're in this isolation ward, they're away from their family. It is actually quite, it is very isolating. It is kind of miserable for people to spend that last moment away from their loved ones. Um, we also have hear of cases where people, um, they, they've got advanced cancer um, and now they've developed COVID. They would prefer to stay at home. As you know, patients who are category one, category two, they can still stay at home and they can be with their family where they can get the care and love that they need. But then when they develop worsening symptoms and they, they become category three, four, some of them have to be admitted to the hospital and then from that point on, you know, they become very isolated. So I think that actually it will be very, you know, useful. And, and we hope that many patients will be able to at least, you know, spend, spend more time with their loved ones at home. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's a question on traditional medicine. Uh, both of you can answer about the use of uh, something called andrography paniculata. I, I think I'll take this question because it looks like a research basis thing. So all this medication, I think we cannot use it in the, in the context of treatment because there is, we need a real data to support the use because anything that is out of the norms, even though some medication, we repurpose it, also we need the approval from the Director General of Health regarding the use of out-of-indication use. So whatever it is, uh, we, we can't just use it based on anecdotal reports or based on clinical experience without a proper trial uh, evidence. So it is actually, and we see that in our COVID-19 patients, some of them will have transaminitis also as well. And if we do not, we are not careful, we use all this medication, then the uh, ALT can go up very high. And is it because the medication that go up very high or is the COVID-19 disease? that make the ALT go up. So I, I would still think that all the medicine that we want to use, we must have 
some basic evidence to show that it is beneficial before we just use it. Yes. Dr. Chow, let's go back to these solidary trials. We yeah. know that this WHO trial is a phase three, phase four clinical trial. Yes. Intention designed during this emergency is, as you mentioned, is so that it can fast track. Mm. It is also repurposing or repositioning yeah. the existing uh, medications for new indication. Yes. And it is also adaptive. It is much more welcome during this pandemic. However, we must admit that there are quite a number of detractors regarding this trial. The very fact that during the early implementation of this trial, I think there were uh, on, off, and then on again regarding hydroxychloroquine, for example, the position statement, and then subsequently withdrawal of others uh, interventional drugs. Even though the enrollment is very simplified, therefore, when the preliminary result was published, it received quite a number of criticisms. Would you like to uh, uh, comment on that? Do you think yeah. that this type of trial has its inherent weakness or is a strength? It's either way, it's double-edged sword. Huh? <laughs> so I would say that uh, Dr. Go uh, is very sharp. But in order for us to come to a conclusion, uh, I think adaptive trial like the solidarity is the way to go in the pandemic. So it's a double-edged sword. Yes, the design of the trial is to get us fast and furious to get a result, uh, to know whether it worked or not, right? But at the same time also, it is actually a, a, a drawback huh? because uh, some of us are actually biased because it's an open uh, label and it's biased. And in fact, I would have to admit that a lot of clinicians, they avoid recruiting a little bit severe category because we are worried that what if it randomized into standard of care? So, uh, but in overall, this is our country only. Eh? But if you look at overall, uh, the percentage that uh, the, the patients recruited in the solidarity trial in terms of requiring oxygens are quite high also, 30%, 30 to 40%. So I, I would say that um, it is actually a needed and it's beneficial that we need to do this in order to get the answer fast and uh, we can actually go and move on to see, to look for another uh, medication huh? rather than dwelling onto a, a, a drug that might not be effective. And furthermore, we know hydroxychloroquine has a lot of issues of arrhythmias issues. Huh? So at that time, actually we look uh, at QTC interval and in fact, all the doctors and MOs huh, will teach about, uh, will talk about QTC and everybody is actually measuring the QTC. I still remember all those painful ECG readings and um, my MO, I have to take the photo from the, from the handphone and then we actually blow up and then we, we actually calculate the QTC interval. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Dr. Chow. I think I agree with your comments. I think decisions whether medications or treatment works or not should leave it to science rather than popular demand. I think that is what is concerned currently. There are a lot of people trying to lobby for treatment A, treatment B to be used in patients. It should be stick to science. I have a question for uh, uh, Dr. Richard. We know that um, this is really a challenging time. You know, how do we communicate the patient, whether in the normal ways of uh, communications or because of uh, palliative care? 
healthcare professional usually very much rely on in-person as well as non-verbal cues to facilitate our communications to judge the empathy and compassion. And you have mentioned that there's a role for remote communication. But remote communication, I think, is challenging for people, particularly those with low literacy, as well as those with very few digital literacy skills, even people with uh, uh, hearing problems, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. Would you like to share with us how do you overcome, overcome this? Right. Thank you very much, Dr. Kovanyong. Um, well, I would say that I won't say that we can overcome it, like you know, to make it ideal to the normal setting that we are used to. You know, of course, there will always be those uh, challenges, you know, of of not being able to kind of um, you know, have that certain body language and all that. But I do think that you can try and optimize whatever you can use. Um, sometimes if we can try to speak clearly uh, and, and try and modulate, you know, our voice, um, sometimes with certain body gestures. Now, you may not have that body language, but as I said, the body gestures. Now, when, and when we're actually on the video conferencing, um, you can still use, you know, your facial expression and your intonation of voice to try and actually, you know, build that sense of, uh, you know, um, uh, rapport with the person you're actually communicating with. And I, I think that families, patients, they do understand the limitations that we have. Um, and I, I, I feel that, well, from our experience, actually the communication that we've had, while it's not, may not be optimal, but I think that uh, people can be still very appreciative. They understand the limitations that we have and they are, they are actually appreciative. I think most importantly is that we have to be very sincere about what we say. You know, if we say that, you know, we are, and we need to assure them that we are actually doing, you know, what we can, and we will not be a bad, we are not abandoning your loved one. I think that's one of the things that people fear the most. They fear that this abandonment. And so we need to reassure them by telling them that we are there. We will be, you know, caring for your loved one. And however, whatever we need to do, we will ensure, try to ensure that he will always be comfortable, which is our primary kind of uh, goal. And I guess that's, that's what you can do. And I do hope that, you know, if we say this and really mean it, and that, that people will actually accept it and understand it. Thanks, Dr. Richard. To follow up with your answer, you know, this uh, crisis has been very uh, professionally and personally challenged to many healthcare workers and many of us. Although we know that the underlying principles for palliative care has not changed, it is undeniable. Specific challenges will require specific guidance during this pandemic. One of the audience asked is currently in Malaysia, is there any palliative care guidance or clinics for, for managing this group of patients? Um, well, in terms of palliative care guidance, yes, there are, there are quite a few um, uh, guidelines that you can actually refer to. Uh, we have actually come up with some guidance uh, from Slayang Hospital, um, and recently we did put it out actually on the internet to try and give people something to, you know, to use. Because yes, what you say is very true. I think healthcare workers do feel very stressed because we're, you know, we're facing a situation where um, we, 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 we want to do the best that we can for patients. And sometimes there are so many limitations and, and we're so overwhelmed. Um, 
But I think that, and 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 you know, when we when we are not able to do the best that we can, we've been trained to do. Sometimes it can be very demoralizing. So if we can at least, in the least, provide comfort and that can dignity to that patient, to the to our patients, at least I hope that that provides some form of comfort also to our, you know, our colleagues um, that they that especially the younger doctors who feel like you know what what are we doing you know are we doing enough. So at least we can do that bare minimum. Um, I, I, I think that that question also did mention something about long COVID. Um, and there are quite a few questions about long COVID. I think from the definition, they talk about it, you know, being patients who have prolonged symptoms more than 12 weeks or three months. Um, data on percentage of patients who have you know, long COVID syndrome, I think we won't have those kind of uh, that kind of data just yet things are still evolving um, but what we are seeing right now is we are seeing those patients who have had very severe kind of uh, um, pneumonias and they've got organizing pneumonias many of them are still very breathless on oxygen and it takes quite a while for them to actually kind of wean off the oxygen and they're still breathless and it, it requires a lot of rehabilitation so I think that that's what we're seeing right now um, how long they need to carry on for, how long it takes for them to recover, um, or whether these will be very long-term persistent kind of problems. Um, I think we will only have data later, you know, this is still evolving. But right now, I think more, uh, the, the, the more desperate need is actually what we are actually dealing with in the acute setting right now. And uh, I would like to add that there is a question, is there possibility of COVID-19 we are CAT1, which is asymptomatic to develop long COVID syndrome? Uh, as the, uh, I think Richard has already mentioned, the data is very scarce for Malaysia. But you look at international trial, uh, it is not rare, for, also not uncommon, for asymptomatic patients actually experience long COVID symptoms, especially anxiety, depression. Uh, because I think part of it is because people avoid those patients who are actually diagnosed COVID positive. Uh, COVID-19 positive. So that's the reason why they uh, most of them in CAT1 asymptomatic, they experience those long COVID symptoms in terms of mental health. Uh, 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 in the overseas data, it's about uh, a fifth of them, about 20%. Okay, But uh, this is not pertaining to those who are long-term oxygen therapy uh, group of patients. As you know, that long COVID can have mental illness. Okay, all right. So the question about what cut off point when uh, COVID, and the palliative care patient no longer suitable for COVID vaccine, Richard. Right. Uh, thanks. So uh, I, I did a, a previous uh, webinar on the vaccination and palliative care. Uh, you can refer to that. But what we talked about was that um, what's most important is probably the prognosis of the person. So you need to actually be familiar with some of the prognosticating tools which you can use. And if you estimate that this patient would not actually survive more than one month, actually, then, then probably you wouldn't actually recommend the vaccination because they wouldn't actually be able to survive long enough to have the vaccination really be effective. Um, and so normally uh, patients, we would, we would think that if their survival is more, at least um, two to three months of survival, then, then perhaps they would still benefit somewhat from a vaccination. Okay, thank you. I think uh, it's time is about another three minutes. Maybe we would like to ask the, both Dr. Richard Lim and Dr. Chow for your purse of this uh, um, dialogue. Um, what are the take-home message from your talk? Maybe we start with Richard. 
All right. Okay. Well, um, I guess in closing, I would just say that I do hope that, you know, all of um, my colleagues out there, all of you who are really working really hard to care for all of our patients, you know, who are in our wards, um, I'm taking care of a COVID ward as well. And I, I do know how, how tiring it can be. Um, don't forget to actually um, always remember that humanitarian duty that we have to care for people who are suffering. Um, and sometimes, you know, although it might feel like, you know, we, there's so much more that we have to do, um, but if we can just do that minimum, I think that, um, you know, people actually, they, they would at least feel better for it and, and they will appreciate it. Thank you. I think so. Um, all right. Thank everyone. And thank you for those audience who are actually listening uh, into us. And uh, again, I would like to stress that uh, most of us who are treating COVID-19, we know we, know it, we are actually, um, what you call the agitated, uh, when we know that there is actually no known medication that can actually prevent the progression. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we, if we do know, we will use it, but we have to be medically use it when there is evidence-based and rather than emotionally based. So uh, again, I would stress that everything we do, we have to base on medicine and science. All right. Thanks. Yes. But from my side, since I'm representing the community hospice, the same message I would like to say when our hospice doctors and nurses visit patients or have a video conference, it's very sad to see that the person, the end-of-life patient that uh, the family are taking care of so well at home suddenly have COVID and they have to be sent away. It's heartbreaking because you realize when they go to the hospital, it will certainly be not the same as how they take care of these loved ones at home. And also due to the body situation, most likely they will not be able to pull through. So when the ambulance take the loved ones away, it may be the last time they see the patient alive. So we plead to everyone, healthcare workers, take care of yourself, your family, your seniors at home and tell people to take care because it is such a situation now that we certainly have to take care of ourselves first, our mental health as well, and then all the others as well. So, so uh, I see many of you are young doctors out there. Um, uh, do take care of yourself, your mental health. Talk to people if you need help. Yeah, so I would like to thank uh, speakers again and all of you who are here. Please do join us next week for Dr. Dr. Chang Kian Ming, who is our consultant hematologist at Sun Samui Medical Center and who is also our MRAC chair when he was working with KKM. He talked about introduction to phase two and phase three clinical trials. And Dr. Salina Abdul Aziz, consultant psychiatrist at the HKL and the current MRAC chairperson to talk about social media the new tool in clinical trial. So with that, I want to thank Bat Leong and um, uh, all of you and uh, certainly the big strong team in ICR behind the scene who made this uh, webinar such a success and sharing such important information firsthand, sharing personal experience. Can't get that from the textbook. Yeah, Bat Leong and I are most happy to, to, to have chat this session. And uh, if you can't get this, you can certainly uh, uh, watch webinar and all these other uh, records. Uh, you can look into the website. Thank you very much. Um, Balyong, you want to say something? Oh, thank you. I think a uh, wonderful session. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs>